0: As we saw last week as we began our examination of the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews has a message which is quite clear. As right from the very beginning, the author of Hebrews sort of aims to show how Jesus is better. This is not just a catchy title. Though it is, I think it truly is what the author of Hebrews is striving to do through 13 chapters show you how, in every single way, Jesus is superior. He takes A lot of time proving that thesis over and over as he carefully leaves no stone unturned, so to speak, in order that these Hebrew Christians, this Hebrew church, so to speak, that he is addressing, might have the hope that only Christ can give them. No amount of liturgical flair or faith can live up to what Jesus offers in the gospel. As we kind of noted last week, and by way of introduction, that the church that is being addressed here is a church that is very much in disarray. They are scrambling. The persecutions likely, the persecutions that have been felt because of Emperor Nero's rule are being felt extremely palpably by this church. They are under pressure Pressure that is often leading to persecution. that all of that is bearing down on the congregation that is here being addressed. All of its members causing some to think that maybe it would be better if we turned away from this religion of Jesus Christ. It would be better if we renounced that faith altogether and turned back to Judaism. Essentially that is the prevailing sort of thought that is in this church's mind. It would be easier, perhaps they would save their own skins, perhaps they would be able to get out of this season, out of this decade even with their lives. But the writer of the Hebrews, as he shows and basically says, not a chance. No way. Because what we have in the gospel, as he is again trying to say, far outshines anything and everything else. This sermon of encouragement and it begins in that breathtaking fashion as we noted last time with the preacher really focusing all of his energy and attention right from the get-go on this sort of spotlight of God's revelation who is Jesus Christ himself notice verse one long ago After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here again, there is a beaming spotlight pointed at Christ. And indeed, I think that's sort of the point that he's trying to convey. That Christ himself is, we could say, the spotlight on who God is. That's essentially what that word radiance in verse 3 means. The radiance of the glory of God literally means that he is the spotlight that beams out and emits the brightest rays on who God is. And that's his point. His point, uh, another reference I wanted to take you to last week, and I totally forgot. But the point here in these first three verses is to show that Jesus is the true and better prophet of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. And just by way of getting you into what the, the preacher here is doing. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter number 18. Chapter number 18 and look at verse number 18. Deuteronomy 18, 18, notice what the Lord says, speaking to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself shall require it of him this Of course, this prophet that is being sent by God, it is not in reference to Jonah or Elijah or Elisha or to Amos or any other prophet that has been risen up in the days after Moses. This, of course, is referring to the true and better prophet of God, namely Christ himself who is the word of the Father, the full and final revelation, prophetic revelation of who God is, is this one, Jesus, who is, as John says, the word become flesh. He is the embodied word of God, not a message sent through a prophet, but a word that has come in flesh and blood. That was his point in verses 1 through 3, but as he is going to show, he segues to a new argument. And you might be inclined and, It might be natural to assume that whoever this writer is would go on in detail how Jesus is better than the prophets. It would make sense, right? He would go through and show you how he's better than Isaiah, how he's better than Jeremiah, how he's better than this prophet and that. But interestingly, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he goes on to say how Jesus is better than the angels. Notice verse 4 back in our text of Hebrews. Having Become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. I find this a really curious way of making his case, sort of, so to speak. Why was Jesus? And his superiority over angels, sort of the first thing that's on this writer's mind. The first thing that he's looking to tear down is the sort of veneration of angels in this church, perhaps. Of course, angels are highly revealed spiritual figures within Judaism. If you search their texts and look at their, their books and all of their doctrines... Both Stephen and Paul, in fact, make reference to the presence of angels at the very declaration of the law on Mount Sinai. Go with me, just so you can see this. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse number 19. Notice what Paul says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Go with me to Acts chapter 7, because Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he says basically the same thing. Acts chapter 7, look at verse 53. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. And did not keep it. Which is an interesting fact. Both facts that Paul and Stephen here are claiming. Is the fact that the law was given yes by Yahweh to Moses. In the company of angels. Sort of as this transmission device so to speak. Which actually corresponds with Moses' own testimony. If you have your finger flip all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Because Moses' own testimony near the end of his life. Corresponds exactly with what Paul and Stephen have said. Deuteronomy 33. Verse 1, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us and shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came from the ten thousands of holy ones, that is, holy angels, with flaming fire at his right hand on his deathbed. Years later, after that event, Moses still vividly recalls that brilliant scene on the summit of Sinai where he received the law and he saw, yes, the glory of God in the company of ten thousands of holy beaming angels. Which of course is just a small sampling of how featured and how significant angels are for the people of God. Especially throughout the Old Testament. But of course throughout the scriptures. Indeed prior to Jesus becoming incarnate angels were the primary instrument of God's power. Of God's judgment. Of God's communication. The way in which he interacted with man was often through the mediation of angels. But as the writer of the Hebrews here says, far and above them, far superior, more excellent than they, is Jesus. And why? How? How is he better? Well, I think there's three ways in which the writer to the Hebrews here says that Jesus is better. The first is this. Jesus has a better identity. Jesus has a better identity. Notice verses 4 again. (coughs) compiling evidence so to speak for what he is striving to say that Jesus is more excellent than angels and he begins by asking this sort of rhetorical question so to speak which he augments by quoting scripture actually throughout this whole chapter here down through verse 14 he's going to be quoting from the psalms significantly but he asks this question to which of the angels ever received this royal designation you are my son He asks, to which angel did God ever say, I will be to you a father and you shall be to me a son? And the short answer, of course, is none. No angel ever received this from the father. No angel no spiritual being, no matter how good Gabriel or, or Michael the archangel ever was, they never were regarded so highly, so honorably, and so magnificently as Jesus is. And as precisely because Jesus is God's son. This is the name, the name that he refers to there in verse 4 as he says, His name is more excellent than theirs. His name is son of God. And truly, that's the name, as Paul later says in Philippians chapter 2, the name at which all things in heaven and under heaven and the earth and under the earth will bow at one time. That's his name. That's why it's more excellent. Because it demands more. It is more powerful, more prominent, more potent of a name than any of the names that the angels might have had. There are a few occasions... In the Old Testament, where angels are called sons, which is an interesting point of fact. In Job 1 and 2 and Job 38, actually, angels are referred to in the company of heaven as the sons of God. But this is not, or there is only one and only one true son of God to whom is given all things. And that is this one who is Jesus the Christ. Notice, go with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, where Jesus sort of comes out and talks about this very thing. John chapter 3, look at verse 34. John three thirty-four. notice Jesus is talking here. And he, or actually, this is John the Baptist, or excuse me, the Apostle John, sort of adding his own sort of editorial comments about who Jesus is. Notice, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The one whom God has sent of course is Jesus. And he is uttering the words of God. How can he do it without measure? Because he is God. The father loves the son. And has given all things into his hand. This is what we are to see. This is the the name that Jesus inherits. Is the name of the son of God. It's trying to. Cut through some of the the language here is is somewhat uh, interesting but also very timely to do. Because in verses 5 and 6 back in our text, Jesus here is called the son of God. The one who is the firstborn, the one who is begotten. And at first this might appear to be a little bit confusing. And in fact in the history of the church, some have taken hold of these terms and proposed that just like the angels, Jesus Christ is just another Created being that God spoke into existence. Of course that is a very heretical doctrine. A heresy that has been attributed to Arius. This false doctrine says that Jesus Christ is not on equal footing with God. And instead he is just a creation of the father. But of course Jesus' identity here as God's son should not be thought of in terms of Offspring. He's not the, the progeny of the father, so to speak. He is a, a, he is the son of the father. And by that, it is only meant to mean that he inherits all that the father has as a firstborn would. You see, his identity as God's son means he is the one to whom is owed all of the majesty, all of the dignity, all that heaven and earth can muster. He deserves because he is its king. He is its maker, after all, as he has already proven the preacher has in verse number 3. This father-son dynamic is helpful for you and for me to understand and sort of make sense of what has occurred and what has happened in the incarnation. That God has sent the second person of the Trinity to earth incarnate as a man. And that makes us realize exactly what he has done. The word of God, again as we have striven to show, who is the son of God, has now come to earth in the fullness of time. And put himself on lower standing than the angels, even though he himself is vastly superior to the angels. Which again shows us the descent that he has made. This Jesus, this son of the father. And this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the son of God, the one who received this title, my son, because that's who he is. It's, it's this here when he, he's talking about this name that he has that is more excellent than theirs. is meant to evoke those scenes, those scenes at Jesus' baptism and the scene at Jesus' transfiguration. Actually, go with me. I won't try and pretend I have those verses memorized. I'll read them. Luke chapter number 3, notice what happens. Luke chapter number 3, I know we're turning to a lot of places, but I think this is to get us to see exactly this argument that the preacher here in Hebrews is making. Notice Luke chapter 3 verse 22, or I'll read verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And notice, go with me to Luke chapter number 9 where the same designation appears. This of course is the scene of Jesus' transfiguration. Luke 9, look at verse 30, 34, but 35. But look at verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This is who Jesus is. He's the beloved of God, the chosen one of God, the one who is, as it is said all throughout Scripture, the anointed one, the ancient of days, whom God has specifically sent to you and I. And he has always been God's beloved. Jesus did not become beloved at some other point. Christ incarnate is the incarnate son of God in whom is found, as Colossians says, the fullness of deity. All that God is, is captured and wrapped up and put in flesh and blood in Jesus. That's who he is, which is just to say that Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. He is on equal ground with the God the Father. There is no division. There is no segregation. There are no no levels of, so to speak, to the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. And you can imagine Jesus receiving this designation. And God the Father in front of all of these disciples in front of the church. Basically saying, this is the fullness of who I am. If you see Jesus, you are seeing the Father. Manifested for you. Manifested for you in a way that you can understand. That's his name. That's his identity. God the son has come. And he bears a title that is better than any title that the angels might possess. Which leads us to point number two. Not only does he have a better identity. But he also has a better authority. Go with me back to Hebrews chapter 7. Or excuse me, Hebrews chapter one, but look at verse seven. Hebrews one verse seven. Notice what the writer says. But the son, or excuse me, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his minister is a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here. The author presses this point even further, trying to contrast here, not the identity, but here the authority of who Jesus is in contrast with the angels. In short, as he has here just said in a very few amount of words, the angels have no authority of their own. Their authority is entirely given to them. It's derived by the one who has sent them, namely God himself. It is God Who is here, he says, makes them to be what they are. He makes his angels, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. There's a sense of possession. There's a sense of preeminence that God sends these ones out to do his bidding. And in fact, this idea that angels are ministers appears at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation again here you have this image this idea in the mind of the preacher that the glory of the angels is found in the fact that they are being sent by God to serve they are the agents of heaven these angels are who carry out whatever purpose God has given them whatever bidding that they receive from him they carry out and we can see that all throughout scriptures Whether that bidding be the announcement of the Messiah's birth to the shepherds. Or whether it be springing Peter from prison in the book of Acts. Or whether it be raining down judgment on the people of Israel's enemies. Whatever it might be that the angels are seen doing. It is their delight to execute that call. Because it is a commission given to them by God himself. In fact, that's what their name means, angel. It's not, it's really just a term which denotes their calling. It's a Greek word which means messenger. And in fact, that's what they are. They are the messengers of heaven, the diplomats of glory, if you can think of it that way. And just like any diplomat only has authority so long as he is representing who is giving him his message, so too are the angels. They have no true authority in and of themselves all angelic authority comes from the one who sends them that's where their authority derives that's where their authority comes from and as the writer of the hebrew says this is not the case with the son because notice again verse 8 but of the son he says your throne o god is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Did you notice what was said of the sun? He is in possession of a throne. He is in possession of a scepter. And he is in possession of a kingdom. All of which in cor- uh, of which, of course indicates who this son is. Namely he is the king of glory. He's not an agent of heaven. He is the king of all kings. You want to know who this, this, this king is? Look with me at Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Listen to who this king is. Psalm 24, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So many times here that the psalmist references the king of glory. And you want to know who that king of glory is? Is this one who is here seen as he says, Sitting on the throne of heaven with a scepter in his hand. Sitting and ruling his kingdom in uprightness and righteousness and truth. That's who Jesus is. That's who he is here supremely exalting. Because you see, while angels are messengers, here Jesus, the Son of God, is the magistrate, the monarch of heaven. Whose rule is unchangeable. Whose rule is unchallengeable. Who can withstand the authority of the word of heaven who sits on the throne of it all. Who can challenge or question the authority of the maker. No one. That's his point in verse 10. Notice. And you Lord laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning. The one who is sitting on the throne is the one who's laid the foundation of all things from before time. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. The authority of the one here that he is speaking of is matchless. It cannot be questioned. It is the authority of the Son of God. Who has a better authority than the angels, who has a better identity than the angels. And lastly, notice, he has a better ministry. Notice verse 13. Here the author is showing. That this one who is here seated, this one who is better, far superior than the angels is already in the the process of accomplishing something so much better than what the angels could ever have thought of. Notice verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The important point here in this verse, and one of the ones that stands out, is this image of the idea of making the son's enemies his footstool, properly speaking. The image that should uh, pop in your your mind, so to speak, is that of a warrior on the battlefield stomping on the neck of his enemy after he has defeated them. A sign, of course, of unequivocal and unquestionable victory. And the question then is then raised to this church, to which of the angels has this ever been said about? Of course, the angels have never done such a thing as to make all of the enemies of heaven and hell the footstool of their feet. They've done very specific amounts of judgment and violence, of course, in the name of the kingdom. But they have a very specific ministry. Again, as was noted in verse 14, they are dispatched by God to perform specific tasks. They are ministers. They are servants. They are aides. But here, as he has just said, this son, he is here given this assurance that all of the enemies of heaven and hell will be made his footstool an entirely different ministry he comes to earth to fulfill it is a ministry of triumph it's important to note what he is quoting here here in hebrews 1:13 the author is quoting an old testament passage that of psalm 110 what just so happens to be the most often quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It is a psalm that appears roughly 20 to 30 times depending on how you count. Quoted by both Jesus and his apostles at length. I want to draw your attention to one of those quotations in the book of Matthew chapter 22. Notice. Jesus Has it been enduring here in Matthew chapter 22, a litany of questions from the scribes and from the Pharisees, where finally he asks his own question. Notice verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. If you want to silence the Pharisees, just ask him this question. An enigmatic sort of question from Psalm 110. Who is David talking about? As if he's talking about his son. How can David call his own son his Lord? It doesn't make sense biologically. It doesn't make sense. How can he call this one his Lord if it comes from him and supposedly the son of David? Of course, this leaves everyone in earshot scratching their heads. But the point that Jesus is striving to make, this only makes sense if this psalm is prophetic. This only makes sense if this psalm is trying to speak of a Messiah that would come. And I imagine him sort of saying all of these things while pointing a big finger at himself saying, He's here, by the way. I'm him. I'm the guy. I'm the one that this psalm is talking about. And Peter declares the same exact thing. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Notice what Peter says at Pentecost. The very sermon which sort of leads to the foundation of the early church. After the spirit of God descends on all of those who were in that room. Notice what Peter says with boldness. Acts 2 verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see here, the point there that Peter is making. The point is that when Jesus died and resurrected, he is thus there accomplishing what was promised by, as he says, the prophet David. Who spoke of a Messiah. And now we are witnesses, he says, to that Messiah being come who by his death and resurrection has put all of the enemies of heaven and hell under his feet. He has demolished them. They are his footstool. He by his cross has stampled and or trampled and stamped on the neck of all of Satan's cronies. That's what Peter's saying. A wonderfully powerful image for the church. And the writer of Hebrews is here then in Hebrews chapter 1 agreeing to which of the angels ever received this monumental victory. This unequivocal and unquestionable victory. None except for the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Who on the cross effected this victory by which all these enemies are now his footstool. Which again leads us to that wonderful paradox of the Christian faith which is the cross. Which again as we've striven to note looked like defeat. It looked like abject failure. But in actuality it's the place where the son was crushing the neck of Satan. As was promised all the way back in the beginning, Genesis 3.15, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Here on the cross, it is accomplished. And here the preacher of Hebrews is saying, it's here. Jesus is better. He has all of the enemies that you could ever face under his thumb. Of what of the angels can this be said? The writer to the Hebrews says, none. Their ministry is not about salvation or deliverance or forgiveness of sins. That's the son's ministry. He has put into motion by his death and resurrection that to which we all longingly look forward. The final defeat of death and our ultimate deliverance from sin when we shall be made like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's what Jesus has accomplished through his ministry of death and resurrection. And that is why Jesus is better than the angels. Which leads me to ask this question. Or leads me to sort of inquire further. Why was this argument that Jesus is better than the angels... Made so significantly here in the first chapter of Hebrews. Hopefully you were able to keep up with all of those arguments here that the writer to the Hebrews is making. But still you might be tempted to think, yeah, okay. So what? <laughs> what does this all have to do with me? I mean, I kind of know that. We know Jesus is, is better than the angels. So what? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I'm going to answer it. Even if you don't want the answer that I might give. We are only a few days away from what is often called the hap-happiest season of all, Christmas. As you can see in our sanctuary, it's already decked out with Christmas decor. And maybe perhaps after you were done eating Thanksgiving dinner, you did the same. Dusted out all of your old Christmas decor, got it out of boxes. Maybe you even got your tree out of a box, I don't know. Or you cut it down and you've already decorated with all of, all of the tinsel and the lights and all of that stuff. And maybe you're already shopping for that perfect gift for your family. And as you do so, you will likely realize that all of the stores and all of the, the places that you go to are beginning to play the same dozen songs on repeat. My one caveat in Christmas is I don't want to hear Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time ever again. Uh, it's the one song I could do without... Anyways, all of this means is that also during the season, one of the most adorable, albeit unbiblical, little platitudes will be put on repeat. Tell me if you've heard this phrase, quote, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Love that little quote, even though it's not very theological. It comes from the 1946 film by Frank Capra called It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart. If you've ever seen that film, or if you've not seen that film, I encourage you to watch it. It's actually one of my favorites. The movie, if you are unfamiliar, tells the story of George Bailey, played wonderfully by Jimmy Stewart, who grows up in the small make-believe town of Bedford Falls, and he grows up having very big dreams Of adventure and of exploration. And all of these dreams go go unfulfilled constantly. As life moves on all around him. His younger brother becomes a war hero. Everyone is moving out of town. Everyone is constantly moving on. Causing him to grow cynical and jaded. And later in life, after a series of increasingly unfortunate events, George Bailey finds himself in the middle of a bridge on Christmas Eve night contemplating jumping to his death. But before he can, before he can jump, good old Clarence Oddbody, his guardian angel, jumps in the water first so that George, he explains, can save him. He jumped in so that George had an opportunity to save him. And they spend the rest of the night, Clarence, George's guardian angel, they spend the rest of the night sort of together talking as Clarence shows George what it would have been like if George had never been born. Leading, of course, George to rediscover the true meaning of life. I love this movie. I adore it. I grew up on it. In fact, it's one of my uh, my mom and dad's family traditions to watch It's a Wonderful Life every year on Christmas Eve. And in fact, there's many scenes which you could say are very affecting and very emotional. But I think it has led to a great deal of theological error, not because of the film, but mostly because it deals with angels. I'm going to rip off the band-aid. I'm just, I'm just going to. I'm just going to do it. I do not believe that you and I have a personal guardian angel. God protects us, God watches over us, and God sometimes, yes, will send angels to be about his business and his mission. And very often, I think that means ministering to his children. There are countless scriptures throughout the Old and the New Testaments which convey this very truth. But I may remain unconvinced that we are assigned or given a guardian angel when we are born. And I'm fine if you disagree. I'm fine with that. But I think in many ways, angels themselves are somewhat representative of our culture's fascination with all things spiritual. The spiritual realm and the occult, they fit into those things that we often like to inquire about, even though we don't have a lot of knowledge of. And it's funny, I think, because we Americans like to think that we are not as superstitious as other cultures, those less developed countries. We are not as susceptible to those fables and fairy tales of angelic sightings and whatnot. We're smarter than that, we think. We have all of these degrees and look at all of our discoveries. And yet, there is something about angels that fascinates us, that captivates us, that allures us. What are they like? Who are they? And what do they do? And what do they look like? Go ahead. I dare you this afternoon. Type in angelic encounters into Google and just see what you find. There are pages, I did that by the way, there are pages and pages of stories of people who have claimed they've seen an angel and are any of them true or are all of them false? And to both I'll just say, I have no idea. I will say, one guardian angel advocate recently offered tips on how to learn your angel's name And how you should ask him for a sign and why you should actually sit down and write your guardian angel a letter as if that's supposed to give you comfort or peace or assurance. And all of that is just really nothing but sentimentality dressed up as spirituality. And I don't mean to sound so cynical and bah humbug about your belief in guardian angels. But I do mean to say this. That I think an overemphasis on angels and angel sightings rather than building our faith can actually collapse our faith. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if you believe in guardian angels, you're not a believer. I'm fine if you've studied the Bible and there's plenty of scriptures you can go to and you can make that conclusion. What I am saying is this don't take that belief too far because we don't need to look for signs or sightings or encounters. You and I don't need to furiously hope and wish upon a star for our guardian angel to come down to us and protect us and provide for us. Why? Because in the gospel, we have something so much better than a guardian angel. We have the word and the spirit of God Himself given to us, we have God's Son. Who brings us into union, not with a specific guardian angel, but who brings us into union with himself through God's spirit. And we have the son of God who has made himself known in the word of God that is perfectly preserved for us. Which tells us all about his life. The life that he lived so perfectly The life that he lived that was without fault, that was without error, that was without anything that was demeaning. And it tells us about his perfect death. The death that he died because of sins that you and I committed and have yet to commit. And it tells us all about his resurrection that he made for us and on our behalf. And this word tells us all about how he's coming soon. To reclaim his church and bring them to him, win glory with him forever, and we will never be separated from him again. We don't need Clarence Oddbody to tell us that. Christ already has. Christ has already shown us the wonderful point that I think here, the writer to the Hebrews is here making, is that we don't have just another word. It's not just a word that is coming to us that is told. It's a word that is shown. It's a word that has action. It's a word that has a body. And that's so much better. So much better than you and I ever deserve. And so much better than you and I could ever hope for. Jesus, yes, is better than angels. And that's because he is the son of the father. The son who took your place on the tree. And who is standing, yes, even in glory now forevermore, interceding on your behalf. That's so much better than what any angel could ever do for you. Because it's actually God standing in the place, standing for you. My friends, believe in the Son. There is no work that we have been called to work other than this. John six twenty nine. Believe on him whom he has sent. And that is this one. The son of God whose name is far superior and more excellent than anyone who has ever followed him. May we worship the son and he alone. Let us pray.